Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. You're listening to Chuck Moore Speaks Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m. right here at Cyberstation USA Radio Network and at Blog Talk Radio Station, along with our affiliated stations. You're welcome to join the program, of course, and the number is 347-327-9849. That number again is 347-327-9849. Let me welcome aboard John Wolstetter. He's a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute and the author of Sleepwalking with the Bomb. John, thanks so much for joining me this afternoon. I am delighted to be with you and your audience. John, this is a historic uh, day in that we are now looking at the third debate between the two presidential candidates, this one focusing on foreign policy, which is your area of expertise. Uh, So far from what you've observed with regard to the present campaign, do you see any discernible difference between the foreign policy of either candidate, could you predict going forward, in terms of which one would win? Well, I believe that Mitt Romney would would have been more forceful, for example, in dealing with Iran, not necessarily using force, but he would not have stood by in 2009, as Obama did, when the the revolt against the dishonest election that elected President Ahmadinejad uh, came, you know, sprung up and caught the regime off balance. I think he would have pressed harder for sanctions. He would not have granted the exceptions that Obama has has given. Mm-hmm. I think with respect to Russia that Romney would not have negotiated the New York New START treaty. He certainly wouldn't have look to give away missile defense with flexibility, as Obama is uh, hinting he will do after the election. He would not have put daylight between the United States and Israel uh, in favor of the Palestinians who have repaid it with more refusal to bargain in good faith and more non-negotiable demands. You seem to be describing an administration over the past four years that – not only appears weak in terms of Americans' position in the world, but um, appears to have lost its moral compass in terms of America articulating its moral position in the world, which is something that I think our allies have always historically responded to, not to mention people in the world responding. Now, I want to ask you about the first point you made with regard to the Iran and, and the fact that the Obama administration ignored the um, the upheaval during that corrupt election. Now they're putting in sanctions, and then just yesterday we find out, according to the New York Times, that they're engaging in secret negotiations with the Iranians 
Um, they're hoping to reach some sort of a deal, which apparently the Iranians are now saying would not happen until after the election, that would involve an exchange of Iran stepping back from its nuclear development in exchange for a loosening of the sanctions. Uh, is this some kind of an October surprise? Do you have any knowledge or insight on that, uh, John? Well, all I know is what I've seen in the paper. I think it it has all the uh, smell of an October surprise. The the idea is that uh, that the, if they're going to do this sort of thing, uh, the only thing that the Iranians would do at this point, since the centrifuges keep spinning while they've been negotiating, right. is they would make an utterly unenforceable promise and one that we probably couldn't verify that they wouldn't enrich beyond a certain level. The fact of the matter is they've repeatedly lied. There's no reason to believe they would honor such a commitment at the international monitoring uh, by the International Atomic Energy Agency is not solid enough to guarantee that you catch them cheating. They would only make a commitment if they could cheat and get around it, and it, uh, they're using the, the, the talks as a stall. We, you know, There's been direct negotiations many times over the years in secret between the American government going all the way back to the Carter years, and even Reagan did so, the, the infamous uh, Iran-Contra affair. Mm -hmm. sure. uh, the fact is the Iranians have a perfect record. They have never honored a commitment they've kept. And, you know, it's like negotiating with North Korea. They never honored a commitment either. So, right. But I think the president, I think his true bottom line is what Senator Obama said as a candidate in 2007 when he said that Iran could be deterred. He believes that. He thinks that it's in the national interest. And so I think after the election he'll probably make some sort of deal. What I worry is that he may make a deal even if Romney is elected and try to bind Romney by you know, making a deal where perhaps, and I'm speculating here, perhaps he makes a deal that says that we will, as long as Iran does not enrich beyond a certain point, we will refrain from military action to try and tie Romney's hands. And it's possible, I think, that he might do that. And he would, I assume, do that if he loses the election because he thinks that that would burnish his name in a favorable way. Historically, he could point to some sort of an accomplishment in his administration. Well, there's or, is, that, or is it more sinister than that? There's that, and I think also he would uh, extend diplomatic recognition to a Palestinian state on, okay. the, uh, on the 1949 ceasefire lines that existed in 1967 and try and force that issue. Now, Romney could rescind that, but politically, of course, yeah. it would be tectonic. Look, uh, Obama has a moral vision of foreign policy. It's one where America's, American power is the primary culprit in, in a lot of the things that are going wrong in the world, and if we withdraw somewhat from it, lead from behind or not lead at all, things will get better. And uh, Mitt Romney doesn't think that. He believes in American exceptionalism, whereas Obama, when asked about it, said, look, uh, the British believe in British exceptionalism, the Greeks in Greek exceptionalism. He doesn't really believe in those things. Right, and I think that, that that's a key point in his the entire tone, if not actuality, of his administration in terms of um, how he sees our relationship in the world. And that uh, he has indeed, and Mitt Romney has said this, been on an apology tour uh, since he's been president. Uh, maybe not in terms of explicitly apologizing, but... The tonality of it is apologetic, and the bowing is something that I would love to see him explain, because there are so many instances where he bows, and no American president should ever bow 
to a foreign leader. It, it's a disgrace. And, it, and these well, things may seem symbolic, but they have significance in the world. Well, that's true. But you, you need to look at it in an even broader sense. When he spoke in Cairo, he mentioned the uh, coup against Mohammed Mosaday in 1953 in Iran that put the Shah on the throne after right. Mosaday had taken over. Well, Mosaday, of course, had nationalized uh, uh, British oil interests and was getting ready to uh, take other measures. And the fact is that although Iranians will sometimes mention it, Iranians are much more concerned about the government they hate now. The great majority of them hate this government on what we could see and getting rid of it. And they're not going to worry about 1953, but Obama felt obligated to cite that thing, which, of course, he had uh, – is it a historical episode that is of interest to historians only, really? Right. Now, what, why then would Obama, what's going on in terms of his, um, yeah, I hate to use the word, but being an appeaser when it comes to the Iranian nuclear development, uh, he has done nothing with regard to uh, the Syrian civil war. He has uh, publicly um, created a great distance between the United States and the state of Israel, especially with his comment to uh, Pre uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu when he said that that Israel would have to withdraw to the armistice lines of 1949 with a couple of swaps. I understand that it's been the uh, the, the policy of, of successive administrations, uh, the, the so-called two-state solution, but nevertheless, it had never been so explicitly stated by any president. That, uh, well, but no, it was never the policy that Israel would have to. You see, when you say Israel should bargain based upon the uh, 1967 ceasefire lines, which Obama mistakenly called borders. Right. This, this has Israel making concessions to get parts of Jerusalem that it was understood by the Palestinians would never be on the table. The uh, Resolution 242, adopted by the Security Council uh, five months after the 67 war, contemplated withdrawal, but not from all territories, and that gave Israel bargaining leverage that Obama's formulation takes away. That's right, and it's actually exactly it goes beyond the uh, the UN uh, Security Council resolutions. It goes beyond uh, the, the uh, resolutions put in, put place by Lyndon Johnson after the uh, Six Day War, which said that Israel would withdraw to quote borders, uh, which is not the borders and uh, those, recognized boundaries. That's right, which 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 I think Israel did when they withdrew from Sinai. But uh, even moving on, uh, um, Obama basically gave the boot to Mubarak in Egypt, and now we have the Muslim Brotherhood talking about, uh, you know, annihilating Jews. Apparently, yesterday in a speech where Morsi said "Amen" after a, 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 an Islamic radical preacher had called for the annihilation of Jews. Well, you Morsi have the situation. Excuse yeah. me. Morsi has used has called Jews apes and pigs. There's no question about what this guy is. He isn't Sadat and he isn't Mubarak. Right. And and then of course in Libya, you know, you had a, a war that uh, had no congressional oversight whatsoever, where uh, Obama eliminated Gaddafi. Not that I wouldn't support that, but I didn't like the fact that um, it was done in a manner that was more heavy-handed in terms of executive decisions than any war in history. Um, and uh, yeah, I think what we have is I you know it just makes me wonder what are the motivations of this man in, in the Middle East 
Um, would you have any thoughts on that? Well, look, Obama's vision is uh, to withdraw as much as possible. That's why he pulled troops out of Iraq when they weren't even taking casualties, and Iraq is starting to come, und- come undone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he thinks that the Islamists can be treated with, and these are very badly mistaken views, and Romney does not share them. I've got a hard break coming up in about a minute or so. Right. All right, listen, I, please. Con- uh, we should be in touch. I'd like to continue further when we have more time. I would love to, and uh, thanks to your audience for tuning in. Thanks for having me. And I'll so be where can people get your book, John? They can get it through Amazon or through Barnes & Noble, Sleepwalking with the Bomb. Thank you very much, John Wallstead, a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute. Thanks, we'll be John. back after these messages. Chuck Morse, Chuck Morse Speaks, 347-327-9849 is the number, 347-327-9849. I want to thank John Wolstetter for joining me in the first segment, a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute, the author of Sleepwalking with a Bomb, has some very good insight with regard to the foreign policy of President Barack Obama, Uh, and of course those are issues that I think that I certainly hope are uh, brought up tonight by Mitt Romney in his debate, the final of the three debates, um, when they discuss and where they will be discussing foreign policy in Boca Raton, Florida. Um, there is a very, very stark and definable difference between the foreign policy approaches of these two men. In hour number two, we'll be joined by Marilyn Hickey. This is, I believe, her first interview. She is the author of a book called Dinner with Muhammad. She spent 12 years as a Christian missionary in the Muslim world, and she's got insights in terms of her experiences um, right right in the, the heart of um, radical Islam in, in what's considered to be one of the most radical of Islamic cities, that being Karachi, Pakistan where she and her fellows were preaching the good word right in the heart of the beast. So that I'm kind of looking forward to that, just if for no other reason than to gain her insights um, in terms of uh, her personal experiences uh, in dealing with Muslims and, and, and how they responded to her preaching. Uh, you're welcome to join us at 347-327-9849. That number again is 347-327-9849. My good friend Roger Simon from uh, Pajamas Media has a uh, blog up today. Should Barack Obama resign tonight? I won't hear what I'd like to hear at the presidential foreign policy debate this coming Monday. What I'd like to hear is Barack Obama resigning over the Benghazi, the most extreme political mishandling of an attack on American personnel ever, certainly in my lifetime. If I or most people had been president and something like that had happened on my or our watch, and then I had lied about it myself while urging others to cover up, I would be so ashamed of myself that I wouldn't be able to come out in public. 
by the way, this is not just a, a mundane kind of a lie that Barack Obama engaged in. This was, you know, the kind of lie that led to Richard Nixon resigning. Actually, actually, it's probably quite a bit worse. In this case, four four men were murdered. You know, I mean, Nixon at least was nothing more than you know, inept, you know, wiretapping and whatnot. I don't think anybody was ever murdered as a result. But that's not what happened. This is back to uh, Roger Simon. In fact, the reverse occurred. The president acted as if it was Mitt Romney's fault for ever bringing the subject up. And he had a willing co-conspirator in the morally stunted Candy Crowley. Obama's outrage during the second debate, even at being questioned on his response to the terrorist killing, is one of the ugliest displays of narcissism I have ever witnessed from a politician, and certainly the ugliest if you consider the ramifications of his behavior. That the mainstream media ignored this reaction is testimony or testament to their enduring pathology, or perhaps to a secret longing for the divine right of kings. But it doesn't matter. If Barack Obama does not resign on Monday, his reputation will be destroyed forever, even if he wins a second term, because Benghazi will not go away. This is not just about because of the seemingly insoluble conundrums described so thoroughly by Watergate author, among other things, James Rosen in his Wall Street Journal op-ed, the three Benghazi timelines we need answers about, but for the reasons yet more disturbing. Whoops. Oh, no. Website not available. Come on, Roger. Don't do this to me. Um, oh, no. Okay. Oh, there it is. It's probably my computer. Uh, this is off Pajamas Media. I'm reading Roger Simon Editor's article here. Only a man with a leftover undergraduate ambivalence about Western civilization would have dealt with the Benghazi catastrophe in such a fashion in the first place. Barack Obama responded to the terrorism like a Columbia junior stoned on a reefer, particularly one from his era. He took another toke and moved on. And then, when it was told he couldn't do that, he got angry at the people telling him. How that will play out in Monday night's debate, I have no idea beyond my wish that he would resign and spare us any more of this. But Mitt Romney would be well advised to remember his opponent as a man who has not fully grown up. He doesn't know how to take responsibility in an adult manner. So the chances that he will lash out are strong. He also may be aided and abetted by that enterprise, in that enterprise, by Bob Schieffer, who, of the three debate moderators, is the longest card-carrying member of legacy media. In fact, he is one of the most long-standing around. You can count on his bias to shine through, overtly and covertly, because this could be the last hurrah of that clique, and they know it. Given public response to the debates and the moderators, it's hard to believe we will see the same dumb show in 2016. If we do, shame on us. And one final thing. I would like to hear in the foreign policy debate, but will not. 
It's time to name our enemy. And by that, I don't mean Al-Qaeda. That's just the joker in the pack. The villain with a thousand faces, able to reappear in any mask imaginable and in any location. No, the real enemy is the pack of cards itself, Islamism. But Obama's administration never mentions it. They don't even use the word terrorism. It would be really interesting if Mitt Romney asked Obama what motivated Major Hassan's mass murder of his fellow soldiers at Fort Hood. I bet the answer wouldn't even be worthy of an undergraduate. Anyway, so there you have it. Roger Simon today in Pajamas Media. Very, very good column. Okay, we'll take a brief break. You're welcome to join the conversation. 347-327-9849. What is on your mind this afternoon? 347-327-9849. If you'd like to join the conversation, 347-327-9849. You can email me, Chuck Morse, host of Chuck Morse Speaks, at number 4 at gmail.com. I'd like to mention that my new book is now available online as a PDF. Uh, This is in advance of its publication. Um, And uh, you can get that for just $375. On uh, and order it right off of my blog site, which is Chuck Moore Speaks. Um, it's right there. You can just click on and get a copy of The Monkey Trial. Check it out. It's a big book. It's, a, it's almost 100,000 words, 150 pages. I put a lot of work into this. And uh, gets into this uh, an issue that remains controversial, has been controversial for over 100 years. And that is probably the most uh, profound question that we can ask as human beings. Where did we come from? In the, in the great words of uh, Admiral Stockdale, James Stockdale, who am I and where did I come from? Uh, the theory of evolution has answered that question for modern, enlightenment, secular society. Um, yet it's not complete. I would argue that it is not the case. Um, This is not, however, a book about creationism. Uh, That's something that I leave to the theologians to discuss. This book is about specifically evolution as a theory, not just scientifically, which which from a scientific standpoint, I would argue it's dubious at best, 
but more from the political and social standpoint, what the theory has spawned, what have been the fruits of evolution in our world, evolutionary thinking. So check it out. It is available, and I'm excited to say that because the idea of making my book available online before it's published is something that only occurred to me recently that, that I could do. And um, you can get a chance to uh, to see it directly and read it and uh, hopefully benefit and enjoy it. I put a lot of research into this. And, um, you know, I've, I've spoken on the topic uh, many times, both on the radio and in front of people, uh, including uh, pretty good crowds of people. And the response is always controversial. It is always something that provokes a great deal of thought and a great deal of discussion. And uh, I believe that my my hypothesis in this book certainly runs against conventional wisdom. Uh, conventional wisdom both from the left and the right, by the way. Um, and so uh, you have the makings of perhaps uh, an opportunity to do what every good radio talk show host likes to do, and that is to introduce some new thinking into an area that has that I think is long overdue for an examination. Um, I'm hoping that I can speak on this topic to uh, to school children, you know, because uh, the Scopes trial, which is what the book is named after, the monkey, they called it the monkey trial. What it was about was an educator, that being John Scopes, being told by the state that he could not discuss a certain aspect of science, what he contended was science, that being the theory of evolution. Uh, and, you know, he lost the trial, but he won the war in that, um, of course, theory, evolutionary theory is all that is legally discussed now. To uh, suggest otherwise is illegal because it's seen as, quote, religious, unquote. Well, I don't look at the thing as, as religious in, the, in a theological sense, in that I'm going to discuss details about the creation story in Genesis. I look at it more religious in the generic sense, which is, are we created in the image of a creator, or are we simply uh, biological entities that emerged from what Charles Darwin called the warm, small pond? And what are the moral and ethical aspects of evolutionary theory, and how do they contrast with our conventional Judeo-Christian Western view of morality? They are the two principles, I would argue, are irreconcilable. You cannot have and you cannot contain both principles. Anyway, so the book, The Monkey Trial, is available if you'd like to order it, on my blog site and only on my blog site. And uh, you can go there by going, just putting my name, Chuck Morse, or Chuck Morse Speaks, into your server, and up it comes. All right, back to the hard news of the day. This is from the Drudge Report. It's an article in the Washington Times. Chavez Castro Putin, four more years. Apparently these great gentlemen have endorsed Obama. That's just what Obama needs, right? Why not throw in the son of Sam? <laughs> Why not throw in Jeffrey Dahmer while they're at it? Or John Wayne Gacy? All right, of course, they're dead. 
Venezuela's President Hugo Chavez and Russia's Prime Minister Vladimir Putin find time for a chat during a welcoming ceremony at Miraflores Presidential Palace in Caracas. This is just a picture of a Putin visiting Chavez. The latest dictator to publicly announce his support for the commander-in-chief's re-election bid was Venezuela's Hugo Chavez, who this week assured he'd vote for Obama if he were from the United States. The America-bashing strongman made the announcement on a state-owned television, saying Obama is a good guy, and that if Obama was from Caracas, he'd surely return the favor by voting for Chavez. That I don't doubt for a minute. Earlier in the year, the government official daughter of Cuban military dictator Raul Castro proclaimed her country's support for Obama during a visit to the United States. Quote, I believe that Obama needs another opportunity, and he needs greater support to move forward in his projects and with his ideas, which I believe come from the bottom of his heart, Mariela Castro said during a cable news interview. I agree with her. He will move forward with his projects and his ideas, and they do come from the bottom of his heart. I don't doubt that for a second. Okay, so here we have Castro's niece endorsing Obama. All right. Um, this brings us to Russia's Vladimir Putin, who Obama, back in September, I think, meeting with Medvedev, who is uh, Putin's puppet, told him in an open mic moment that um, wait till after the election when he could be more flexible on the topic of um, American missile policy. Really? What did he have in mind? Anyway, Putin, who has eliminated most elections in his country, and by the way, Putin recently, this is also in the Drudge Report today, he has put four rock and roll people, rock, you know, like punk rock guys, in a rock band which mildly criticized his regime. He has put them, they were imprisoned. Now apparently they've, sent to, they've been sent to work camps. I mean, in other words, this is the old Russia. They've been sent to Siberia. This is like in the days not just of Lenin, but this goes back to the days of the czars. I mean, they're like enemies of the people. All right, so think about that for a minute while we talk about Putin. In a letter to a major newspaper, the president of a group dedicated to expanding freedom around the world points out that under Putin, there has been an across-the-board crackdown in civil society. The piece goes on to ask, will Obama stand up against Putin's abuses? Unlikely, now that the Russian dictator has extended his endorsement. So there you have it, the three axes of evil, Castro, Chavez, and Putin. They're all endorsing Obama. Now, in today's Drudge Report, by the way, there's an excellent montage of pictures of Barack Obama bowing and holding hands with several world leaders, including the Saudi king, the Japanese emperor, and somebody else there. looks like it's a couple of other people. I mean, look, I, I'm just going to say this again. People might think that this is just some symbolic thing. It doesn't mean anything. 
to have a, an American president bow in front of a, a world in front of another nation's dictator or leader of any sort. But symbol symbolism is very important. It's important in terms of what it conveys to the world. It's important in terms of what it can actually do in terms of consequences for symbolism. Uh, and Barack Obama, by bowing, especially to the Saudis, I mean, it's, it's really something that is inexplicable. And if there's one thing I would love to see Mitt Romney bring up, and maybe if they have a chance to do a question and answer, to actually ask Barack Obama about would be just this. What was he thinking when he bowed to the Japanese emperor or to the uh, Saudi prince or to some of these other dictators? I mean, what was he thinking as the American president? The American president should never, ever, ever bow to anyone. He represents the United States. He is the commander-in-chief. He is our chief executive officer. We elected him to represent us in an office that should never be abused in such a way publicly by symbolically bowing in front of some tin horn dictator in a foreign land. I mean, we don't bow, for example, in front of the Queen of England. That, that goes back to John Adams. When John Adams was the first ambassador to Britain, uh, after we became independent, even before Washington was inaugurated. And he set the tone by how he treated King George III, which is that he did not bow. They had a handshake, and they didn't, there was no uh, curtsies, no bows. From, his wife didn't curtsy, nothing like that. It was just a straight, you know, regular how are you kind of thing. It was no, uh, there was no symbolism of deference there was no uh, subservience and um, and that that was understood by the british monarch who it was expected we don't bow americans don't do it you know we just don't bow we just don't do it and i i would also add to this and this is gets into an issue of course that uh, you know liberals and democrats constantly bring up and i'm going to bring it up in my own context and that is that Barack Obama, as an African-American especially, should never bow. You know, African-Americans, even though Barack Obama's uh, father was an African, he, was not, uh, he did not have the experience of, of those who are descended from slaves in this country. Nevertheless, the African-American community, of, uh, the American African community, African-American community, uh, a large portion draws their ancestry from slavery. And these were people who were brought to this country in, in terrible, terrible suffering conditions, and they were then put into chains where they were sold like cattle. And they were forced to bow because, they had the, because of the lash. You know, this is especially something that, that we would expect African Americans of all people to not bow in front of anybody you know, because of what their ancestors have been through. So I'll just reiterate that, that, that this is an absolute disgrace. And I would love to see Mitt Romney bring this up. I, I don't think he will, but it should be brought up. Somebody should ask Obama directly, and they should not stand for his nonsense answers where he talks about everything but. They should insist on an answer. 
I've had this before with radio guests of mine who don't want to answer a question. And, you know, it's like peeling away at the onion when they and they start to yell and shriek. But you have to stick with it until you get an answer, or until you at least get them to acknowledge or get the listeners to understand that they refuse to answer. And then you can talk about why they're not answering. Maybe after they leave. Uh, but uh, this is something that needs to be answered, uh, I would argue. Uh, this is not excusable, in my opinion. Anyway, you're welcome to join the program. Uh, we're talking about tonight's debate, 347-327-9849. What would you like to see brought up during this debate? What would you like to see Barack Obama, President Obama, answer to? Or what would you like to see Mitt Romney answer to? with regard to foreign policy. Here's the New York Times. Monday's debate puts focus on foreign policy. When President Obama and Mitt Romney sit down Monday night for the last of their three debates, two things should be immediately evident. There should be no pacing the stage or candidates getting into each other's space, and there should be no veering into arguments over taxes. This debate is about how America deals with the world and how it should. If the moderator, Bob Schieffer of CBS News, has his way, it will be the most substantive of the debates. He has outlined several topics. America's role in the world, the continuing war in Afghanistan, managing the nuclear crisis with Iran, and the resultant tensions with Israel, and how to deal with the rise of China. The most time, Mr. Schieffer has said, will be spent on the Arab uprisings, their aftermath, and how the terrorist threat has changed since the attacks on September the 11th of 2001. No doubt the two candidates will spar again, as they did in the second debate, about whether the Obama administration was ready for the... was ready for the... um, sorry about that... um, was ready for the attack in Benghazi, Libya that killed J. Christopher Stevens, the American ambassador, and three other Americans. Mr. Romney was widely judged to not have had his most effective critique ready. At at this time, presumably, he will be out to correct that. The early line is that this is an opportunity for Mr. Obama to shine and to repair the damage from the first debate. He was already telling jokes the other night at a dinner in New York about his frequent mention of Osama bin Laden's demise. But we can hope that it is a choice for both candidates to describe, at a level of detail they have not yet done, how they perceive the future of American power in the world. They view American power differently, a subject I try to grapple with at length in a piece this Sunday, The Debatable World, that being the author of this column, David Sanger, He has to throw in a little pitch for his book. Why not? But for now, here is a field guide to Monday's debate. Libya and Benghazi. Both candidates will come ready for a fight on this topic. But the question is whether it is uh, the right fight. Mr. Obama already admitted mistakes on the Daily Show with Jon Stewart and promised to get to the bottom of them. But the White House has been less than transparent about what kind of warnings filtered up from the intelligence agency before the attack on the consulate. 
and whether there was a way that American security forces could have arrived sooner, perhaps in time to save some of the American lives. No doubt the argument will focus on a narrower issue, why the administration stuck so long to its story that this was a protest against a film that turned into something worse, rather than a pre-planned attack by insurgents. For Mr. Romney, the task is to show that the Benghazi attack was symptomatic of bigger failings in the Middle East, a road he started down in the last debate, but an argument he never completed, mainly because Candy Crowley was waving her fist in his face. Okay, so that's in the New York Times. I think it's actually a pretty balanced analysis, especially from the New York Times. Um, We have So here we have it, the final debate at last. And then following that, the election is really just two weeks away. I mean, it's literally two weeks away. It's two weeks from Tuesday. And um, how do things look? You know, I mean, how is Mitt doing? I think that he is, to the degree that there's any momentum for anybody, it's for Mitt. I mean, that seems pretty clear. Colorado today, according to the Rasmussen poll, they've got Romney at 50. So he's broken the 50 barrier in Colorado and Obama at 46, which is outside the margin of error. That means that Colorado is now in the uh, in the Romney camp and he's got a pretty clean sweep of the west except for the coast well he's got Alaska but he doesn't have the coast which is California Oregon and Washington although the polls in California have tightened and to the degree that there's any momentum in Romney in uh, Obama country it is toward Romney You know, I mean, Obama might not get as far as he was hoping to get in those states. And, of course, he has his home state of Hawaii. And I believe he also has New Mexico wrapped up. But other than that, the entire West, it looks like it is in the Romney camp. The entire Plains states, uh, from the Dakotas down to uh, Kansas, Nebraska, Oklahoma, and Texas, is solidly with Romney. It looks like Romney has a pretty solid rap on the South, including Florida, where he is ahead within the margin of error, and Virginia, where he is ahead within the margin of error. If he can continue to hold that lead, he will sweep the entire South, including the border states of Missouri, Kentucky, and not, not well, well, Missouri and Kentucky, uh, but not... Uh, Maryland and Delaware, they look like they're solid Democrat states. You get a lot of government employees in, in those states. In the north, in the in the Midwest, Ohio is a toss-up. That's the key state, always has been and remains. But I think that the last Rasmussen poll shows Colorado in the margin of error with Romney having maybe a one percentage lead. There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on in, in Ohio. I mean, there's a lot of chicanery going on. Uh, George Soros paid apparently uh, millions of dollars to have over a million telephones handed out to people. Those uh, cell phones are going to call people and tell them to go to the polls. There's all this other stuff. I mean, I think that's where you're going to see major corruption, probably from both sides. Um, and, of course, um, 
Obama has his home state of, of Illinois because he's got a lock on the big city of Chicago. But nevertheless, downstate, you've got um, increased numbers for Mitt Romney. You've got Indiana solidly in Mitt Romney's camp. Uh, Ohio, I mean, uh, Iowa is now Romney territory, so they've lost Iowa. And Iowa is a swing state. I mean, that's a, that could go either way. And um, I believe Wisconsin is a tie. Minnesota is for Obama, but not by big margins. It's very tight there. And um, Dick Morris brought up the point that um, Obama has spent all of his money on the swing states, and he's ignored the blue state base. So they don't have all this negative stuff about Mitt Romney thrown at them, and which means that Mitt Romney could make some inroads there. In fact, I think to counter that, Apparently, uh, the uh, Obama campaign is now borrowing $15 million from the Bank of America to try to sustain itself because they haven't been able to raise enough funds. Um, so you have possible shifts. Even Michigan, which is a really which is a real blue state, uh, Romney has pulled up. I don't think he could win there, but you know, these the the situation is that if it were tight there and if the the polling showed uh, that uh, Romney had done well there Th that could have good that could have pretty solid national repercussions uh, so so you've got uh, you know a, a tightening of the race in the midwest the northeast well there's a real shocker there according to an internal poll in the state of Pennsylvania Mitt Romney is ahead in Pennsylvania a state that has not voted against a democratic president going back probably 20, 30 years, uh, a state that it was assumed was a solid blue state. It looks like Mitt Romney is poised for an upset in Pennsylvania. And I can just, I mean, I could just tell you from looking at the numbers that if Mitt Romney wins Pennsylvania, it's over. He doesn't even need Ohio. You've got uh, Paul Ryan apparently is spending the remainder of the campaign in Western Pennsylvania, going to blockbuster appearances, which where he's packing the house, and where the Romney campaign is buying media in Western Pennsylvania, which spills over into Ohio, um, and that could affect both races. So you've got a huge – that's a real heartland area there, right around Pittsburgh. You've got coal industry. You've got oil industry. You've got natural resources industries there will which employ a lot of people and they're very concerned about Obama's policies West Virginia is solid Romney for that reason as is Kentucky so you know that could be the upset now as far as the rest of the Northeast is concerned uh, New Hampshire is in play it is still considered to be a swing state an internal poll in New Hampshire has Romney up by four which is outside the margin of error Mitt Romney could win New Hampshire. Now, New Hampshire has always been viewed as a weird state in New England, and I'm saying this as a New Englander myself. Uh, I'm here in Boston. It's just different. It, it doesn't do what everyone else does. But it could impact the rest of New England. Um, it is very possible that uh, Mitt Romney could move up and possibly take the state of Maine, um, He's probably not going to take Massachusetts, of course, or Vermont, or Rhode Island, or Connecticut. But 
he could do better in these states than anyone thought he would do. And I think that it is safe to say, and again, this is maybe dreaming on my part, but it does appear that uh, Scott Brown is going to hold on to his Senate seat against the loathsome, hypocrite, absurd uh, Elizabeth Warren. And that could possibly impact uh, other races in Massachusetts, uh, including the presidential race for Mitt Romney, including the defeat of several Democrat, the turnover of several congressional seats to Republicans. And I'm specifically thinking about um, the uh, Tierney's district up, up in the up in Essex County, which uh, in which he has a very strong challenger in uh, in Richard Tassay. And uh, maybe uh, Sean Bielot right here in the 4th Congressional District running for Barney Frank's former seat. Um, and his challenger, Joe Kennedy, who has nothing going for him other than his last name. I mean, he's not a bad guy. I'm not criticizing him. But he's just – if it wasn't for his pedigree as a Kennedy, he would never be considered as a candidate for the U.S. Uh, Congress. He's got no background at all. I mean, he's a kid. So Sean Bielot could pull up and pull out an, an upset there. Uh, I don't know if Sean himself is such a great candidate, but he did very well against Barney Frank. I think that he actually got, uh, I think, 45, 46 percent of the vote, which was better than any candidate had done against Barney Frank since he started out, certainly better than I did. And that is one of the reasons I would I would assume that uh, led to Barney deciding not to run again. So that's an open seat. Uh, the rest of New England, I would say that uh, probably Obama, conventional wisdom tells me that Obama will be taking the rest of New England. But, uh, you know, there are surprises. The momentum is in the direction of Mitt Romney. Obama's, Obama's campaign, I mean, it, it appears to be falling apart. You know, there's not much going on there. It's a uh, you're pretty dismal over there in Obama land, um, I would think. I mean, that's a you know, I mean, based upon what I'm observing here. I mean, it's just uh, he's in he's uh, you know as uh, as old George Bush Senior would say, he's in deep doo doo. Eric Erickson has an excellent morning briefing. I'm going to just uh, read a little of this. The Red State Morning Briefing. Uh, he's got uh, Obama campaign is like a chicken with its head cut off. We're two weeks away, and signs point to the Obama campaign flailing about like a chicken with its head cut off, or more precisely, Florida, North Carolina, and of all things, Virginia cut off. Colorado, too, seems to be slipping out of Obama's reach, making Ohio more and more necessary. Paul Ryan has been making incursions into western Pennsylvania, which gets Ohio media markets, but also helps Republicans in Pennsylvania, something Obama cannot do for Democrats. Within a week, the Obama campaign will probably trot out some blonde somebody with Gloria Allred to claim Mitt Romney and his five sons have all been sharing her. It will be their October surprise. No doubt Eric Holder will be enlisted to drum up a few indictments, too. They'll pin their hopes on last-minute fiction. The Obama campaign is desperate and scared. Desperate and scared campaigns, like animals, tend to lash out. 
and we're seeing signs of that now. This, again, is an article up on Red State, um, excellent, uh, you know, admittedly, and not admittedly, but proudly conservative. There's no question about that. We're seeing signs of that now with the binders full of women nonsense, among other things. The Obama campaign has made a near-fatal and quite possibly fatal mistake. The campaign has been run on what Barack Obama has done for people without barely a hint of what he will do in his second term. By the way, I have to point out that Obama's been running commercials in New Hampshire, and he mentions at the end of the commercial, you know, the usual tagline, this ad was paid for by the, by, you know, authorized by the Obama campaign. And he, he, the way he does it is that, that I am a candidate for the presidency. You know, it's as if he's not president. He doesn't mention that. <laughs> I mean, I think that's quite telling, actually. Ah, the campaign has been run on what Barack Obama has done for people without barely a hint of what he will do in his second term. People want to vote for something. Obama has given them nothing to vote for, just reminders of the past that includes a whole lot of unemployment and a still deeply unpopular takeover of the American health care system. At least there's Big Bird and Sandra Fluke. What's more, Mitt Romney and the GOP are benefiting tremendously from Team Obama's pride. The Obama campaign cannot, out of pride, admit it is losing key states. Consequently, the campaign continues to pour money into states like Florida that have fully slipped away. The Obama campaign is also hoarding Democratic Party funds that could be spent on other races. An unwillingness to let go of states and money and an inability to help other Democratic campaigns is not just costing Barack Obama but it's costing the Democratic Party as a whole. The United States House of Representatives will not fall into Nancy Pelosi as a result. To Nancy Pelosi as a result. The United States Senate remains at play as a result. Republicans just need to rally to guys like Todd Aiken, whether they want to or not. The Obama campaign's pride will be the Democratic Party's fall. Okay, so this is an excellent article. It's up uh, on Eric Erickson's uh, We a Daily uh, Red State uh, blog. is excellent. Yeah, here's another one from him. Let me just go right to that. I don't think we have time, but uh, we've got uh, a, a guest coming up in hour number two. So I'm going to kind of rattle through this one. Inside Obama's disastrous foreign policy. Uh, this is a pretty quick article. As a prelude to this week's final presidential debate, in which the subject will be foreign policy, it is appropriate that foreign policy be published, has published an essay by former Obama regime official Rosa Brooks. It's frighteningly titled, The Case for Intervention in Obama's Dysfunctional Foreign Policy Team. It is well worth the read if you're interested in how Obama has mishandled our foreign policy, and made us less respected and more susceptible to attacks now that at any time since the dark years of the Carter in, 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 in efficacy. <laughs> she identifies six basic things Obama needs to do to turn around his disastrous foreign policy. Number one, 
get a strategy. We don't currently seem to have one, grand or otherwise. We've got the long war, but we don't seem to have a long game. And without a clear strategic vision for the world, there's no way to evaluate the success or failure of different initiatives and no way to distinguish the important from the marginal. Critical observation, okay, I think that uh, that I'm going to leave that there. That's in Foreign Policy Today, excellent article. Uh, check it out. Uh, let's see, what, briefly also on the Drudge Report, there's a good article uh, in which um, Elena Kagan, Supreme Court Justice, says, I'm not sure I would have been President Obama's nominee if I weren't a woman. <laughs> That's quite an interesting uh, admission, I must say. When did she say this? Um, you know, she she got she like was lucked out. Justice Elena Kagan said she was not sure if President Obama would have picked her, nominated her to the Supreme Court if she had not been a woman. During a talk before law students on Friday at the University of Tennessee Law School, Kagan said, "Quote, and to tell you the truth, there were also things that I got because I was a woman." I mean, I'm not sure I'd be standing here. I'm not sure that I would have been President Obama's nominee if I wasn't a woman, she said. And if he wasn't as committed as he was to ensuring that there was diversity on the Supreme Court. So mostly what I think when I think about this question is how far we've come and how much I owe and all the women who have come after me owe to people like Justice Ginsburg and Justice O'Connor, she said. She was all right. Just it's interesting little insight there, uh, in terms of, of of her thinking. Anyway, we shall be back in hour number two. Uh, we've got a guest lined up. Um, let me just go to the the playbook here, um, and that would be uh, today at about two fifteen. I'll be joined by Marilyn Hickey. She's the author of Dinner with Muhammad. The topic is Christian mission into the Muslim world. Should be very interesting. Uh, so stay tuned for that. You're welcome to join the program, of course. Uh, we're at 347-327-9849. That number again is 347-327-9849. And our number two, Chuck Moore Speaks. And please uh, check out my blog site, which is Chuck Moore Speaks. And uh, if you're inclined... Order my book now available online as a as a PDF file. That being the Monkey Trial, the Trial of the Century. Uh, read about it on my blog. You can order it right there. It's only three. It's only three seventy five, and uh, I will then email you the book. Um, and um, it's just I'm just beginning to offer it in advance of its eventual publication. So check this out. You know, it's a big book. Uh, and I'm very proud to have written it. Uh, it took a lot of research over 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 probably about, it took me about a year to write this one. I usually write about two books a year. 137 pages, 91,000 words. The Monkey Trial: Evolutionary Politics in the Post-Traditional Age. So stay tuned for hour number two. Again, Chuck Moore speaks, uh, and uh, just sit tight, and we shall return.
are back, 347-327-9849. You're welcome to join the conversation. 347-327-9849. Chuck Morse, Chuck Morse Speaks. I'd like to welcome aboard uh, Cyber Station USA Radio Network and, of course, our sister station, Blog Talk Radio. Uh, come on down. Join the talk. We've got the big debate tonight uh, coming up. That, of course, uh, is uh, between President Obama and uh, former Governor Mitt Romney. Uh, it looks to me like the polls indicate that momentum is in in a fa- it is favoring Mitt Romney across the board. There is no place where Obama is picking up any steam at all. And to the degree that there's any sort of momentum or any change, it's in the direction of uh, of Mitt Romney. Um, you know, this is uh, Colorado today, according to the Rasmussen poll, has Romney at 50, Obama 46. That's outside the margin of error. It looks like Florida is already very much solidly in the in the mid camp. Uh, I said that Virginia is tilting toward Romney. Wisconsin is now tilting toward Romney. Um, even Pennsylvania, according to an internal poll, is tilting toward Romney, which is huge because if Pennsylvania goes to Romney, that's it. It's over. That would be uh, that's something that was assumed would be uh, solidly in the Obama camp, but that's going to be an earthquake. I mean, they must be absolutely. Uh, I don't want to use a slang, but defecating bricks over there at, in in ho, in, um, in in headquarters Obama right now, and uh, so he's going to now stride forth tonight at Boca Raton, and he's going to discuss his foreign policy, which. Uh, People in the left have assumed it's been so wonderful, but uh, the fact is that it's up in flames. Um, You've got uh, the Benghazi murder of four Americans, including our ambassador. You've got the cover-up of that. Apparently, Obama is recalibrating his explanation for that for tonight, so the story will shift again. You have the Arab Spring, which turned out to be pretty much a disaster. Uh, particularly in Egypt, where you have today the uh, Morsi, the president, saying amen after a preacher called for the annihilation of all Jews. Uh, you've got the ongoing uh, civil war in uh, Syria with three, over 3,000 people murdered. Uh, you've got the nuclear development in Iran. Um, you know, I think Obama desperately is trying to say, oh, well, we, we're, we're entering negotiations with them. Big deal. Uh, we've been negotiated with Iran going all the way back to Jimmy Carter. You know, there's been even Reagan, as, as uh, John Wolstead pointed out, negotiated with Iran secretly. I mean, that's nothing new. You know, the, the, the fact is that they're spinning centrifuges as they negotiate, and they've been doing it since day one. There's no evidence that that's going to stop. Uh, John Wolstead was my guest in the first hour. He made some very troubling um propositions with regard to what will happen with Obama, not if he wins, but if he loses, and he has a lame duck period of time. It's going to be very dangerous. Um, that'll include possibly recognition of a, of a Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza, something that Mitt Romney will have a hard time, if he becomes president, uh, trying to undo. You know, there's going to be some nasty stuff. Here we go. This is just in from the Gallup report. On the Drudge page, Mitt Romney is at 51, 51 
Obama 45. Now, Gallup is not some right-wing poll. This is a big, national, respected poll. They've been around since, I think, the 1950s. That is unbelievable. That is a six-point spread. Mitt Romney not only has cracked the 50, but he's now at 51, with Obama trailing at 45. And um, I think that you know there's still some undecideds mixed in there. Let's see, how do, what's the math? I'm very bad at math. I have trouble with it in my head. But here we go, 50, that would be 95, 96. That means there's still four percentages four percent undecideds, and generally undecideds go for the for the challenger in any way. So, if if this election were held today and Gallup was right, that would mean that Mitt Romney will probably get at least 53, probably 54 percent, maybe even higher, with Romney hold with Obama holding at 45. This is a this is an earthquake. I can't believe, I can only imagine the the Obama people must be absolutely spinning. All right, we're going to take a brief break. We'll be right back. You're welcome to join the program. Chuck Moore speaks. 45 Obama. This is a shocker. This is just out today. It was just released, posted up on the Drudge Report. It just looks to me like it's going to be all over. Meanwhile, Obama has been endorsed by Chavez, Castro, and Putin. Oh, boy. Listen to this. This is pro-life Democrats. (laughs) Randall Terry shoots an ad. This is... uh, of, of, of all the divergent byways the road to the White House provides, there are none so curious as the detour that has me pushing out to the eastern panhandle of Western Virginia, of West Virginia, to spend a week with Randall Terry. Now this is uh, this is from the Weekly Standard magazine. Um, it says Randall Terry. I don't know. Let, let's just read on a little bit here. I'm just curious what what they're up to. Here I will hunker down with the head of the Society for Truth and Justice, Terry's current organization. Two decades ago, as founder of Operation Rescue, Terry was the most celebrated, dreaded, and despised pro-life agitator in America, leading a movement that saw 70,000 arrests and abortion protests in the largest civil disobedience efforts in civil rights. He's been arrested nearly 50 times himself for actions such as chaining himself to an abortion clinic, a sink, and presenting Bill Clinton with an aborted fetus. All told, Terry spent over a year of his life in jail. At the at his mountain compound, we will argue religion. We will watch abolitionist movies for inspiration. We will drink whiskey late into the night while having fetus-friendly jam sessions in his basement office studio with Terry holding down vocals and piano or guitar while performing songs of his own composition, such as Crying for You, Baby, 
sung in the style of his musical hero, Barry Manilow. <coughs> I don't know quite <coughs> what the point of this is, but um, but there you have it. I think it's the idea is that Randall Terry is generating um, Democratic pro-lifers to the Romney ticket in places where they are most needed right now, and that is Ohio, Pennsylvania, where such votes can do some good. And um, yeah, this is uh, this is huge. I mean, the the momentum is there. You've got Paul Ryan out there in Western Pennsylvania campaigning with huge crowds showing up and a lot of enthusiasm and uh, an ad campaign that is brilliantly targeting Pennsylvania and seeping over into Ohio. So, yeah, these are exciting times. I feel that there's momentum. I hate to sound like I'm counting the eggs before they're in the basket. But it just looks to me like, uh, I don't know. Here's an article from the Investigative Project on Terrorism, a red carpet for radicals at the White House. Steve Emerson, oh, he's a great researcher. A year-long investigation by the Investigative Report Project on Terrorism has found that scores of known radicals, Islamists, made hundreds of visits to the Obama White House, meeting with top administration officials. Court documents and other records have identified many of these visitors as belonging to groups serving as fronts for the Muslim Brotherhood, Hamas, and other Islamic militant organizations. The IPT made the discovery combing through millions of White House visitor log entries. IPT compared the visitors' names with lists of known radical Islamists. Among the visitors were officials representing groups which have been designated by the Department of Justice as unindicted co-conspirators in terrorist trials, extolled Islamic terrorist groups, including Hamas and Hezbollah, obstructed terrorist investigations by instructing their followers not to cooperate with law enforcement, promoted the incendiary conspiratorial allegation that the United States is engaged in a war against Islam, a leading tool in recruiting Muslims to carry out acts of terror, and repeatedly claimed that many of the Islamic terrorists convicted since 9-11 were framed by the U.S. government as part of an anti-Muslim profiling campaign. Oh, my goodness. And these people are visiting the White House. Okay, we're going to take a brief break. We'll be back with my guest in uh, this segment. Uh, please stay tuned. And uh, you're listening again to Chuck Moore Speaks. You're welcome to join the program, 347-327-9849. Three four seven three two seven nine eight four nine is the number. You're welcome to join the program. We're joined by Marilyn Hickey. Marilyn is the author of a new book, Dinner with Muhammad. She led a Christian mission into the Muslim world uh, for many, many years. Marilyn, thank you for joining me this afternoon. 
Hello, you're on the air, Marilyn. No? Okay, well, the uh, the line is open for you. You're welcome to speak up any time. Um, Hello? I think that, yes, you're on the air. How are you? I'm fine. Is this Chuck? This is Chuck. Yes, it is. Uh, you're on live at on Chuck Moore Speaks. Great. Is this, is this Marilyn? Nice to talk with you, Marilyn. This is Marilyn, and thank uh, you for this opportunity. Well, I'm delighted. I mean, I'm glad to be one of the first to interview you. Well, good. You're back from, um, I believe you you spent over a decade in um, in Arab and Islamic countries as a Christian missionary. Is that right? No, uh, basically as an evangelist. Okay. So since '95, I have especially been having big healing meetings in Muslim countries, like. Pakistan, like mm. Kenya, like uh, Nigeria, like Egypt, Pakistan the most, like Khartoum, Sudan. So going in and uh, teaching uh, just a miracle of Jesus from the Bible and praying for the sick, and they come up on the platform and share their miracle, and then I invite them to invite Jesus into their hearts. And then we have kind of a sneaky follow-up. Mm-hmm. So, well, first, first of all, I have to tell you that um, I, I, you know, and, and please elaborate. I admire your courage. You're going into lands that it, where it's illegal for citizens to leave Islam. They could, they can have their heads chopped off. I mean, it's uh, and 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 this has happened. I mean, it's uh, there have been reports of that, and. Lands in which the government is openly uh, hostile toward um, toward anything that would even approach um, something that would question Islam. It's a state religion. It's the law of those those nations. I mean, where? How does this happen that you're able to have open public meetings where you're preaching and you're evangelizing? And and I mean, don't doesn't somebody say uh, do something about that? I mean. You must have some situations around that. Oh, yes. We have a lot of security when I do them, Chuck. But what I found is a bridge. Mm -hmm. If you can find a bridge into Buddhism, into Hinduism, Islam, communism, I found a bridge into Islam of healing because in the Quran it says Jesus heals. It mentions Jesus 97 times. So I come in, advertise, put a lot of money on advertising, busing, and uh, my last meeting in January, the last night, we had 210,000 people. Oh, my goodness. And, the and most where, un- where was this? This was Karachi, Pakistan. Oh, boy, one of the hotbeds of Islamic is, uh, radicalism. It's considered the most violent city in the world. 20 right. million people. And nobody shot me. I didn't come home in a box. <laughs> Oh. Really? I mean, did did the authorities just uh, ignore it? I mean, no, they threatened. You know, they said you can never have the meeting. But God gave me unusual favor with the governor of that province, and he said, "You will have the meeting, and we will furnish the grounds." Now, people sit on the ground, you know, all squished together, like sardines. So they, when they number it, they number it by the acre. We did three nights, and uh, you know the government said you'll you'll never open it. Well, we did, okay. and I've been going to Pakistan since '95. So we had people fly in from all over 
Pakistan and unusual healings and miracles, unusual. You know, it's amazing that you have found an understanding of how the Quran teaches about Jesus, and you've been able to bring that as a resonance into Arab countries and Muslim countries. Uh, you know, I would point out that the same teaching, I'm here speaking as a Jewish person, uh-huh. that um, that the Quran has many passages in it that um, that recognize the state of Israel and that say that the Jewish people that, that were brought through the desert by Moses, they should return to their ancient homeland in order to bring up, up the Messiah, which is something that all three religions agree on, and that uh, and that they should live there in peace. And I think that that's I mean, when you talk about finding a, a um, sort of an opening into Islam as a Christian. I mean, I, I can imagine that's an opening into Islam as a Jew. You know that 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 this is uh, that that the Jewish state is is ordained and that it is uh, it is prophesied and that it should exist peacefully alongside Muslim states. But the Quran contradicts itself. Right. So in some parts of the Quran, it says that. Uh, they say Allah said you should kill Jews and Christians. So right. they always want to ask you, do you, and I don't do this from the big platform, but personally when they ask me, they say, well, don't you think Allah and God are the same? And I said, well, let me ask you a question. The Quran says several times to kill, Allah says to kill Christians and Jews. And I've read the Bible, I've read the Quran, most of it. I've read the Bible through many times it. God never says to kill Christians and Jews. So I'll just leave it with you. Do you think Allah and God are the same? So there's a lot of contradictory things there. And Muslims make up one-fifth of the world's population. Right. And there are promises given to Ishmael and his seed. Mm -hmm. So there is a promise of them coming to the Lord. And frankly, the more Muslims who get saved the more blessing we are to Israel. Oh, absolutely. And I, I also applaud the fact that there are more people in China becoming Christian. Isn't and, that uh, wonderful? You know, I interviewed a, a Chinese dissident who um, was involved in that incident earlier this year where he, um, well, he's helping him in the United States where, where this man got out with his family. And he said that uh, they view China, the Christians, the Chinese uh, people who are Christian, it's like the, the Roman Empire. Eventually, everybody, there were so many Christians who had been accepted Christ and they'd been evangelized that the Roman Empire fell into their lap like a, like a piece of a rotted fruit. Yeah. And, you know, there, was no, there was no more resistance to it. I've, it became, yeah. the, you know, the, and so they think that China might go that way also. Eventually, Christianity will reach such a breaking point in China that communism will just... Uh, it just won't have any more. It just won't have any reason to be around anymore. It'll become a Christian country. Well, that's what we believe. I've been to China 31 times, so we've sown a lot in there since the early 80s, especially Bibles. There's been quite a change. But let me talk to you, Chuck, about my book Please. called Dinner with Mohammed. Hmm. And this book is really a book of miracles, and how. When a person gets an eye who didn't have an eye in the name of Jesus, or someone has ten tumors disappear off their bodies, you can't deny a miracle. And, right. you know, if people say, well, Jesus doesn't do miracles, well, it's too late. They have one. 
You know, you don't argue with someone right. who's received That's right. one. You can't, you can't argue with facts. And you know. I see in the Gospels, and I bring this out in Dinner with Muhammad, of how Jesus went about healing the sick. Mm. And he went to people, the fringe people, no question. Yep. And many times the hated people and demonstrated. And the name of Jesus demonstrates. And his name we can use, all Christians can lay hands on the sick. His name we can use to pray for the sick as a Christian, not just a special evangelist. Mm -hmm. So in the book, I also share, I have a Bible study with Muslims here in Denver. I live in Denver. And we have now a, a number of Muslims who've been born again coming to our church. Now, everybody has Muslims in their city. You may live next door to one. I know in Denver we have three mosques, and these people are here on our territory. We need to reach them. I go to Pakistan, go to Sudan, go to Egypt, I go to Indonesia to reach Muslims. But what about the ones next door and right here in my city? And so you say, well, how do you do that? And I put a wonderful how-to in the book Dinner with Mohammed. Mm. And uh, I mean, I, I'm looking forward to reading reading it, Marilyn. I mean, it just uh, just came across my desk, uh, you know, literally a, a, an hour or so ago. So, um, you know, and I'd like to do a follow up once I do read it because this is very exciting. And uh, you know, the, the work you're doing is is important and it's courageous. Um, is uh, you know, do you feel that uh, you can gauge? Uh, in your many years of of of, of uh, your mission in the Muslim world, uh, have have there been a lot of conversions? Is there now the development of a Christian community in places like Pakistan? Yes, yes, there are. And basically, we don't get them in a church. We get them right. in a home group, a cell group. And once you get them reading the Bible, especially the Gospel of Luke. And I don't know why, well, Chuck, the, why that Luke, gospel. Luke was the doctor. Well, it really relates I, to the Muslims. Maybe, and so, Luke, maybe I, I, I'm not, I've read them. I, I'm not a, an expert on the New Testament. But nevertheless, my understanding is that Luke was a, was a physician. So maybe there's yes. this element there where maybe. he emphasizes the aspect of Jesus' ministry that was focused on healing. And they they really began to see Jesus, that he died for them, arose from the dead, and will come into their hearts at an invitation from them. So, yes, there are a lot of Christian ex-Muslims in the world today. And maybe it's more hidden, but still God loves them and wants to reach them. And, you know, here I am a woman. They hate women. And here I am a Christian. They hate Christians, but I have tremendous favor, and that is a miracle from God. One time I went, let's see, this would have been, oh, my goodness, 2004, and 34 suicide bombers took an oath uh, to kill me. And the government found out and arrested 17 or 18 of them and said I couldn't have my meeting in the stadium because of this. So we went out into the streets in a certain community and had the meeting there. And even without advertising, we had over 30,000 people two nights. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, yeah this, there are this, threats. 
but the fact God that just you're, gives... yeah, I mean, just the fact that you have done all this and that you're here to talk about it, to me, is it, it, it's almost a miracle. It probably is a miracle. <laughs> it is. It is. And people I mean, say to me, well, how do you explain it? I can't explain it. It's only a calling, an anointing, the favor yes. of God, and his love and compassion for the Muslims, for the lost. They're part of the lost. Well, you have found your calling, which is to bring Muslims to Christ. Exactly. And, and, and basically what we have then is people who are in probably growing numbers of people in countries like Pakistan who are believing Christians, but they're doing it in secret. And, right. Um, because right. uh, their lives could be at, at severely at severe risk if they if they are open about it. Um, I, you know, I'm hoping that, um, and I, I I pray that you have planted enough seeds in these countries that they're going to grow over time, and that there's going to be eventually a point where uh, the Christian population will reach a critical mass. That you know they I, can't I they you. can't you know they can't go murder you know millions of people. I shouldn't say this, heaven forbid. But you know at some point they, they're going to they won't have the power to um, to go out and harass people. I pray and I pray for the radical group of them, you know, who take the Quran, certain parts of it, in just radical ways. But remember, Indonesia is the largest Muslim country, and. They are having big revival of uh, of Christianity. Yes, big revival. Well, you know, Indonesia has always been less radical, I think, than uh, countries closer to the Saudi Arabian land. You know, it's uh, it's kind of on the fringes of the Islamic world, and I think there's always been uh, other religions there: Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism. That uh, that 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 would be a country that I would think would be ripe. For, uh, well, it's, for, they for, have for, very few uh, Buddhists or Hindus. It is do. really, oh yeah, it, the highest percentage are Muslim. Highest percentage. Right. So, and I asked God, I said, God, I would like to have a healing meeting in a mosque. Now, that's never happened that a woman, a Christian, on top mm. of it, had a healing meeting in a mosque. And in Dearborn, here, you know, uh, sure. that part of Detroit, they have 250,000 Muslims. So I met an imam and asked him, could I do a healing meeting in your mosque? And he said, oh, absolutely not. But then he said, well, when you're in town, come back and have dinner with me and my wife. So I did. And he said to me, now, what is it you want to do? I said, well, I would like to have a healing meeting, just teach Jesus, teach a miracle from Jesus, pray for the sick in your mosque. He said, that hasn't been done in 1,400 years. But he said, I believe we can do it. So I had a healing meeting in his mosque. Now I have an invitation to another mosque in Jakarta, and I'm planning to go back to uh, Pakistan to uh, Lahore next year, and I believe, again, let's keep our faith in Jesus and not just what we hear on the news. And this imam wrote, uh, really, the foreword of the book. Can you imagine? And he let me show the meeting on my television program. It's amazing. I mean, that is really an incredible story. 
It's only a God thing. If we can yeah. keep our eyes on the Lord, you he know, can do I anything. That, I hope that what you're doing also, Marilyn, inspires American Christians who have kind of fallen by the wayside, not to mention American Jews. I mean, right. they've all become, and not to mention European Christians. Yes. Who who have forgotten? I mean, you know, the the, the calling of 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 the faith. I mean, they've become so secularized, so part of the material understanding of the world that um, they they just uh, they need to be woken up. You know, I mean, this is could spill over to that. Well, this is end time. Right. I believe we're going to see our greatest miracles, masses of people having a real strong revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, you know, what what you're talking about is something that I've been reading about on World Net Daily's website, and I should mention in disclosure that they published my book, The Nazi Connection to Islamic Terrorism, hmm. um, and uh, that uh, there is a movement around the world that is growing faster than any other movement in history, uh, particularly in the third world, in Africa, Asia, that uh, is developing a kind of an indigenous Christianity. It's not connected to the conventional Roman Catholic Church or to conventional mainline Protestant churches. It is much more of an indigenous Christianity that does involve miracles. It does involve healing. It does involve experience, direct experience by people, perhaps in a way that is reminiscent of early of the early Christian church. Interesting. Are you familiar with that? No, I'm not. Yeah, I mean, World Net Daily has been doing several articles on it. You might want to check out. I would website. like that. I yeah. would like that. In fact, you should contact them about your book because I think that there's an audience that would be really quite, quite uh, open to your to what you've done. It's, it's actually, it's, it's absolutely an amazing story. I, I suggest you contact Joseph Farah. He is the publisher. Can you spell the last name for me? Yeah, sure. F A R A H. Okay, you know, like Sarah. Okay. Mention, my, mention that I suggested it, and he uh, he's an Arab Christian himself. Okay. And he's very pro-Israel, and he's uh, pro. You know, he's. I think that he's totally supportive of of Christian, the Christian message in in the Middle East mm-hmm. and in the Arab countries, and 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 I think that it's a huge website. I mean, they've got millions of of readers around the world. Wow. So, yeah. So I, I would definitely suggest that you look to them, Marilyn, uh, with regard to your book and. Hopefully, getting them to carry the book as in their book in their book section and and uh, and featuring it in some articles because I think that your story is really amazing and it's one that needs to be told. Well, and I think as Christians, we need to pray for what God prays for. He so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Yeah. So He loves all people of the world, and that includes Muslims, and. I know the terrorists, I know the extremists, I know the ones who are really not extreme at all, but Jesus died for all of them. So let's see how we can reach in. But again, healing is a big deal. It's a big deal. And when I stand up and pray for the sick in those big meetings, let me tell you, it can look very frightening, but it's not my name that heals. It's his name. And that's I have seen Jesus just show up in the most wonderful way and people getting saved and not getting killed. 
Tell me about what you know what it was like in a place like Khartoum, which seems to me to be one of the most kind of radical of Islamic places. It is. Uh, I have had two meetings there. I had a meeting there about 13 years ago on the polo grounds. Mm-hmm. Got the permission of the president, al-Bashir, and probably we had uh, four day, five days. The last day we may have had 10,000 people, but we had a very unusual miracle in this timing, and a lot of people got saved and a lot of people came forward to receive Jesus. So I wanted to go back. But I never could get the permission of al-Bashir. And so then, uh, let's see, five years ago, he gave me permission, but he also let me use their stadium, their largest stadium in Khartoum. And we had three nights, and the last night we had 65,000. Wow. And nobody killed me. (laughs) I find it amazing that, that the government would let you do it. I mean, you know, and knowingly. I mean, it's that to me is an amazing, amazing part of it. I know, I know, and I, I want to go back. I want to go back to Khartoum and do another meeting, uh, Pakistan next year, and then Iran. Uh, I'm really praying. There's uh, never been a healing meeting in Iran. And so, that's quite telling. So is what? It? Yeah. What? How could we get in? So we're looking at a cultural exchange in a university, in a ballroom, mm-hmm. and just saying, now in the Quran it says Jesus heals, and I'm here and I teach the Bible, you, you say it's a holy book, so I want you to see a demonstration of how Jesus heals and pray for the sick. Mm-hmm. So I don't have that okay yet, but it's starting to cook. I've had a crack in the door now. Well, you know something that would be the that, that's the epicenter, I for know. sure. I mean that would oh. be huge, yeah. and to get to get a foot in the door over there, that would, I mean uh, that could set off. That's like a throwing a match in a in a uh, you know in a tinderbox. I mean that's that could be enormous. Well, you pray with me, and I ask for I, yeah. the audience listening that God will give me a favor. This is what I think too. I think they think uh, Islamic communities and countries. A woman is stupid, Mm. and an old woman, what can she do? I'm 81. I'm having my biggest meetings in my 80s. And so I think they think, oh, a stupid woman, too old to do anything, and I do everything. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we never know what God will use us. You never know how somebody they can underestimate you, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Or underestimate what God can do. That's right. Boy, would that be something if you got your, if you got up in, into that country and got into their grill, so to speak, and, and and were able to hold that meeting. That that would be a world-shattering event. I mean, it would be I believe probably, it. would be a great great capstone to your career for sure. And we've had our first breakthrough to go into Iran, not mm-hmm. for any kind of a meeting. We're not going in with that for the first meeting. We're just going in as tourists. And then right. talking to some of, you know, their professors and people like that. And um, and I again, I hope that what you're doing reaches enough people inside the United States and Europe, where yes. there can be an inspiration to Christians, to people who were born Christian or who were kind of nominal Christians, 
who are, you know, looking for some purpose in life greater than just, uh, you know, your your secular day-to-day material world, and and they might be inspired by what you're doing in very adverse situations, and uh, th- th- it's a great and inspiring story. Well, and we have this on our television program, you know, our daily television today with Marilyn and Sarah. So mm-hmm. a lot of people in Europe get the program, and but, also in the Arabic countries. So, but, but you know, it's not always in their language. So we are reaching out into all those countries of the world. Now, Marilyn, uh, because we're reaching toward the end of the segment here, how do people, first of all, how do they get your book? And secondly, how can they watch the program? Okay, our program is on Trinity Network, Mm -hmm. and they can look it up for the time. And it's called Today with Marilyn and Sarah. It's also on Daystar. And uh, they can look up the time, also on Word Network. So right. it's not hard to get our program every weekday. And now you can, can they get, get the, that. Can they get that through the Internet or television? Yes, okay. yes they can. And then uh, the book, and I would encourage you to get two books. You know, we give people flowers. They wilt. We give them candy, make them fat. Give them God's Word. Change their <laughs> lives. Get two books. Get one for you and one to give as a gift. And Amazon carries them. Our website, you know, mhmin.org has them. So it's not hard to get the book. Great. Well, Marilyn Hickey, I want to thank you for joining me. It's been an honor. It's been a privilege. The book is uh, Dinner with Muhammad, um, and it is your story as a Christian mission into the Muslim world. Marilyn, again, thanks so much for joining me this afternoon. Chuck, God bless you. Have a wonderful day. God bless you, too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We'll be back. segment 347-327-9849 if you'd like to join me chuck morse in hosting chuck morse speaks 347-327-9849 well you know if, if if there isn't enough bad news for the obama campaign uh given the fact that today uh, the uh the not the rasmussen but the, the gallup poll excuse me has Mitt Romney at 51%. 51! Uh, and Obama down to 45. It looks like things are moving toward Governor Romney uh, taking this campaign in a possibly a, a pretty substantial way. Uh, Mitt Romney, I don't think he's going to win a landslide, but it does look like he's going to get more. It's not going to be close. And I would you know, just urge I would just make the point with regard to that, that uh, I hope that if Mitt Romney wins, and I certainly do hope he does win, that it's not going to be close because otherwise you're going to have screams of of voter fraud and 
lawyers descending upon the landscape like locusts. You know, the you know, all the left-wing groups, the ACLU, the National Lawyers Guild, you know, foreign observers, you know, which are being brought in by certain left-wing so-called civil rights groups. And it's just going to be a miserable uh, scene. It'll be worse than uh, than what we went through when uh, when Al Gore tried to steal Florida back in 2000. Uh, and so who wants that? You know, I mean, to my way of thinking, if it does look like Mitt Romney is going to win, and it does, and you're still on the fence, listener, you know, or you're just sort of mildly for Barack Obama, you don't know why, it's just kind of like a, you know, out of tradition. So for that reason alone, you might consider voting for Mitt Romney if he's going to win anyway, just to avoid this mess. You know, does the country need that again? Do we really want to go through it? If Mitt Romney is going to win, and it does appear that he very well might, especially as the weeks whittle down, let's give him a good vote. Let's put him in there with enough of a uh, of an electoral mandate that maybe he could not only securely assume the office without any kind of cloud, unlike George Bush had to deal with in 2000, but uh, but that he could then really have a uh, enough of a popular backing and enough of an electoral backing that he could really set the tone. And uh, I would tell liberals who are listening to this program, and this is something in which I would ask conservatives to block their ears, Mitt Romney is no movement conservative. Mitt Romney, there are people on the right who are concerned about Mitt Romney, and they're going to try to hold his feet to the fire. But Mitt Romney is not a, uh, a movement conservative by any stretch. He is certainly not a social conservative. While he may be against abortion, he's not going to take big actions to ban abortion. It's just not who he is. It's not what he's going to be about. He's not going to appoint judges who are going to try to overturn Roe versus Wade. It's just not what, you know, my proof on that is his record in Massachusetts, where he appointed liberal judges to the state bench over the vociferous objection of people on the right. You know, that's who he is. I mean, that's what his record is, and it's not going to change. And if he's elected president and he's in there and he's got a mandate, he's not going to, uh, you know, do anything too too conservative in, in terms of social issues. But what he will do is something that I think all Americans want right now, including most people who think of themselves as liberal, other than, of course, you know, hard left-wingers, you know, the real cadres. And that is he's going to be fiscally conservative. He's going to move the economy in a direction where we could perhaps begin a real recovery in this country, something that Barack Obama has failed to do. He's going to, challenge, he's going to tackle the national debt. He's going to stop the more onerous aspects of Obamacare, the things that people don't want, like the $4,500 a year of mandatory payment out of every working person's paycheck. Every man and woman is going to have to pay that. He's going to get rid of that because he has said so so many times that he can't now change his mind. He might not want to, but he will because he's going to have to. He's promised it so many times that, you know, it, 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 he's in a box. And so, you know, while Mitt Romney is known to be pretty slick, you know, here in Massachusetts, Howie Carr calls him Slick Willard. Nevertheless, he's going to be more conservative in terms of governing 
the country economically. And that's good news. That is good news for working people. It's good news for the cost of goods and services. It's good news for the cost of gasoline. It is good news for prospects of getting a job or starting a business. So for that reason and that reason alone, I hope people vote for Mitt Romney, and I hope they get out and vote for him early. Or as the Irish, Boston Irish used to say, vote early and vote often. And to top all things off, given all these little pieces of news that are coming out, uh, Obama is wrapped up in a uh, in a financial in a donation scandal, where apparently his website does not ask for the code on people's credit cards when they make a donation, making it easy for people to uh, from overseas to make donations, which is illegal. And on top of other various scandals bubbling under the surface, you know the fact that uh, that now. Uh, Emerson has come out with a, a report that indicates that Obama, the Obama White House has had thousands of visitors who are, by conventional definition, associated with Islamic terrorism. We've got Donald Trump claiming that a Barack Obama bombshell, this is in today's Politico, which has lots of good stories, by the way, good, good uh, inside um, political publication in Washington. Donald Trump said Monday that he will reveal very big news about President Barack Obama by Wednesday, but declined to give any hints about his plan, he said on Fox and Friends. Something very, 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 like Michael Dukakis, he said, very, 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 something very, very big concerning the President of the United States, he said. It's going to be very big. <laughs> I know one thing. You will cover it in a very big fashion. Trump, who said he will announce the news on Twitter sometime probably Wednesday, suggested it could possibly impact the election. The businessman, who considered a run for the White House but endorsed former Governor Mitt Romney, has long been a high-profile Obama birther conspiracy theorist. Okay, so does this have something to do with the birth certificate? Ah, I kind of hope not, because I, I just think that um, that issue has um, it's kind of percolated out. You know, it's it's people we all know, we all understand it, and I don't know if there's anything new that could be added to it. It's an issue, in my opinion, but it's not one that I like. Anyway, so check out politico.com. Uh, they've got a bunch of good articles up there. And um, we'll see what Donald Trump comes up with. Again, I think it's probably the birth certificate. So tonight's the big debate. You know, check it out. It's a liberal Bob Schieffer who's talking about liberals. Holy mackerel. He goes way back. And this is Obama's last chance. It really is. This is the last opportunity for Barack Obama to appear before the entire nation. And by the way, I think it's competing with Monday Night Football, so it may not even get as much listeners, as much viewers as he would like, which uh, either way it's going to help Mitt Romney because Romney's ahead. Uh, barring some national crisis, and God forbid there is one with only two weeks left before an election, um, 
Mitt Romney, I mean, not Mitt Romney, Barack Obama is not going to get another chance to address the American people as president of the United States. I mean, not in this forum. So he has to do something. He has to somehow convey to the American people tonight a reason why they should vote for him. He hasn't done it yet. All he's done is tell us how wonderful the economy has been under his administration, and nobody believes that. Four million jobs. Well, he he picked up four million jobs, lost eight million. I mean, people just don't believe it. And now he's going to have to defend his foreign policy? So we'll have to see what he does, how he looks, and and if if it's the kind of lethargic Obama we saw the first debate or the super piped-up Obama we saw in the second debate. I don't know what he's going to do tonight. (laughs) You know, which Obama are we going to get? Meanwhile, Mitt Romney has been sturdy. He's been steady. He's uh, been himself. He answers questions with with a certain amount of substance. You know, he gives people something on the table. He's not flashy. He's not slick like Obama. He's not a brilliant debater, a great articulator like Barack Obama is. But do people want that at this point? Apparently not. Gallup seems to say so. You know, we're we're tired of it. I think people are tired of his voice. You know, this constant, slick, you know, smooth ramble. I think people want to have a normal person in the White House who can speak plain. But that's my opinion. You know, we'll see. So check out tonight's debate. Um, I believe it starts at 9 o'clock on all major stations. Oh, what else is new on the Drudge Report? Uh, shut Ohio reporter not allowed to talk to voters at Biden event. <laughs> Taxes go up in twenty in twenty thirteen for one hundred and sixty three million workers. Pay gap between government and private sector is actually expanding. Uh, it says um, widens to thirty four percent. Maybe that's the haves and the have nots. <laughs> the haves being government employees. Um, man busted for throwing pennies into Democratic headquarters. All he has left after being taxed by Obama. That's a good one. Pro-life Democrat goes all in against Obama in swing states. Geoprink brings back bitter clinger in new Pennsylvania ad. Let's see what this is about. Oh, this is Randall Terry. I already read that. I, I don't think that he's – I would. I agree with my former co-host in that I would not call him a Democrat. That's not right. Chavez Castro Putin endorse Obama. University bans Christian group for requiring leaders to adhere to basic biblical truths of Christianity. What's wrong with that? That's their business. It's a private university. I like that. Carter – that being Jimmy, Israel creates catastrophic situation with the Palestinians. So he's rearing his head. I don't think that's good news for Barack Obama, for Jimmy Carter to crawl out from under a rock <laughs> at a time like this. It reminds people of, of, of a failed presidency, at least, not to mention George McGovern passing away. Good man, but, you know, great American, but nevertheless lost an election by a landslide. I mean, do the Democrats want to remember that right now? <laughs> I don't think so. 
and Nixon, I mean, certainly not popular, but uh, generally speaking, I think more people admire Nixon today. Um, you know, he had a, you know, he his second term was a disaster, but his first term was pretty good. People don't remember that. Uh, Chris Christie, governor of New Jersey, what the hell is Obama doing asking for another four years? Isn't that, he's always very plain spoken. Meanwhile, the CIA is rolling over as um, the White House blames Benghazi on in the intelligence community. Well, he's the boss. The U.S. too slow to act as drones captured captured Libya horror. Um, Wary Swiss banks shun Americans. Michelle Obama Vote early because your toilet may, may be overflowing on election day. Oh, that's a nice image. Um, so, anti-bounce, Romney surges to tie Obama in Wall Street Journal NBC poll, ups criticism of second-term plan, that being Romney. Marco Rubio, president has given up. <laughs> Ryan, energizing Pennsylvania crowd. Shut, anti-Muslim filmmaker detained for almost a month, next court day, three days after the election. I don't think that's right. I don't know what he did, but he shouldn't be detained like that. You know, that gets into some issues of um, political detainees, in my opinion. Um, So we have a lot of things on the table for tonight's debate. Um, I want to mention just again, if I may get in a quick shameless plug that my book my book my book available now as a pdf on my blog site that being chuck Morse speaks the book is the monkey trial evolutionary politics in the post-traditional age this book deals with the influence that the theory of evolution has held on societies and the political movements that the theory of evolution have spawned, these movements having that theory as their cornerstone, particularly Nazism and communism, but also movements movements like eugenics and social Darwinism, all related. In fact, all the basically the same. Uh, in fact, I, I made a presentation recently at a synagogue where I talked about this book, and um, I had someone in the audience come up to me after the presentation, very angry. Why didn't I mention the capitalist social Darwinism? Why am I focusing on Karl Marx and his, how he had interactions with Darwin and how he incorporated the Darwinian theory into socialism and Hitler? Why didn't I mention, you know, the capitalist social Darwinists? And I thought that was a good question because I didn't mention that, and I was thinking about that, and to to keep it brief, and this is something that I may develop, capitalism is not an ideology. Capitalism is a way of life. Capitalism is what people do naturally. You know, it's based upon self-interest, the desire to keep that which you've earned, to own things privately, to have your own control over your life, to trade various of your goods and services with others and to use money as a, an abstract means of exchanging goods and services. 
But capitalism, of course, cannot exist unless there is a government. And more broadly, with, with rules and with regulations, so as to protect people from the conflicts that arise. But even more broadly, capitalism needs a spiritual basis. But nevertheless, capitalism as an idea, it rejects the theory of evolution. The theory of evolution is alien to it because the capitalist views evolution as a spiritual and personal growth and and as a material growth for the individual who is achieving not a, a collectivized biological uh, development. That, that's an alien idea. That's the basis of socialism. So, yes, social Darwinism influenced capitalism, but social Darwinism is a corruption of capitalism. Social Darwinism is individual capitalists who went astray. And that, of course, is the Achilles heel of capitalism in that capitalism is made up of individuals who are imperfect and can be influenced in a negative way by ideologies. Let's not forget the fact is that capitalists were the ones who financed and supported the communist movement and the Nazi movement and the Islamic terror movement, for that matter. So, yeah, capitalists have gone astray. But Darwinism is not intrinsic to capitalism. It is a corruption of capitalism. Anyway, on that note, I'm going to wrap things up for today. I shall return, God willing, tomorrow at the usual time. I want to thank everyone for listening. Check out my blog site if you want to order my book, A Monkey Trial. It is only $3.75 online. You get a PDF from me personally if you if you do that. I want to thank you for listening. Again, it's Chuck Moore Speaks uh, to get the book. I shall return, God willing, tomorrow at the usual time.